Support for the Ankler Art and Crafts comes from Searchlight Pictures presenting Poor Things, the triumphant new comedy from director Yorgos Lanthimos. Poor Things is the incredible evolutionary tale of Bella Baxter, a young woman brought back to life by the brilliant and unorthodox scientist Dr. Godwin Baxter. Now nominated for 11 Academy Awards, including Best Actress and Best Picture, winner of two Golden Globe Awards, including Best Actress and Best Picture, Musical or Comedy, and winner of the Critics' Choice Award, Los Angeles Film Critics Association, and London Critics' Circle for Best Actress. Critics hail Poor Things as, quote, the greatest artistic achievement of Emma Stone's career, for your consideration in all categories. Welcome to The Ankler, in conversation with art and crafts. This is the podcast. I'm your host, costume designer, Mona May. Today, I'm very pleased to interview costume designer Holly Weddington and hair and makeup designer Nadia Stacy about their imaginative and magnificent film, Poor Things. Welcome, everybody. Thank you. <laughs> hello, Holly. Hello, Nadia. Hi. Hello. <laughs> I'm just so happy to have you here as a you know fellow costume designer artist because this film just blew my mind. <laughs> it's just incredible. I've seen this movie three times already, oh, wow. twice in the theater, because when I saw it the first time, I was like, I, I cannot take all of this. This was such an overload of incredible detail. And I mean, beyond the costumes, I mean, the lighting, the production designs, the set, every wall, the colors, the imagination was so incredible. And it's just so rare, I think, that we have this opportunity to work on movies like this, to have directors like this who open us up to this kind of, you know, our own flow as an artist. It's really incredible. I think you have to have this chief, someone who has this vision to bring it to us. And I would love to hear from you how you met our director and how, how kind of it began for you, because that's always so interesting. You know, it's that connection, that first connection you have when you meet. Maybe you have worked with him before. I, I don't know. You know, how, that, how did it begin for you, Holly? Tell me. Yes. Yeah, so I had worked with Tony McNamara, who had written, who wrote Poor Things. Um, he, okay. had, he had done a TV series called The Great and I did I oh, designed yes. the costumes for the pilot episode of, yes. of The Great and we had a very good collaboration I really enjoyed working with him and we kept in touch afterwards I couldn't continue with that job because I just had an, a, my second child and it was too big a job to do alongside that so he then introduced me to Yorgos and so that was that was how I got the introduction and I remember getting you know I've always loved Yorgos's work had you know been a, a big fan really a fan of both of their work Yorgos and, and and Tony McNamara and I got a call to say would I like to go and meet him and could I read this mm. script and the script came through on the Friday afternoon and it was in December, so I had this weekend planned of Christmas parties, um, which I I just realised I was going to have to miss because I got the I called the local bookshop and got the book. They got they said they could get the book the next day, and I so I spent the weekend reading the script, reading this book, which is really dense actually. I mean that was really probably a bit too much trying to read that at the same time, and preparing imagery because I knew I would have to come up with something really good to get to get the job. So I went sprinting off to this bookshop at the end. We've got a very cool bookshop at the end of our, our road. Um, it's fashion, a fashion bookshop, like photography and fashion, and, and found this book on dolls, this Japanese book, these strange Japanese dolls with these clothes on that are all, you know, a bit too, you know, the, the proportion of the, the cloth is... It's far too big for the for the scale of the doll. Yes. So I yes. I prepared all this stuff and then went to meet him on the Monday morning. But you know, it was a bit of a sort of marathon getting that ready. Yes. 
I mean, it's always stressful. I think that it's always stressful with the preparation because you don't really know what they're thinking. I think it's always kind of, uh, and then you want to go crazy and wild, but then you also don't want to go in one direction that maybe they don't like. I mean, I've been in those you know moments like, oh my God, I'm bringing something so wild, but will they bite? So I guess he did bite. He loved what you brought. Well, I mean, I think it was a starting point. You know, we had some things to talk about. And, you know, sometimes those initial things that you pull up, pull on, you know, you draw on in a, in a, in a very sort of high pressure, time restricted um, context are the things that, you know, those initial starting points are actually very, they're very crucial. They're very important. Like when I actually look back at the design, I think, oh, actually, they were manifest. In, in the work. It's something intuitive, isn't it? Isn't it that something, I think sometimes it's this intuitive and that, that kind of like the pressure of getting something out of your inside, you know? Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. Very cool. Wow. What a, what a wonderful connection you've made. That's so beautiful. And Nadia, tell me about you. How, how did you meet Yorgos? I actually worked with him before on The Favourite. Oh, okay. And yeah, it's, it's kind of a similar story to Holly's really. I suddenly, for that film, suddenly got the script and they say, can you be in town and meet him and it was like a few hours later and I said oh I've I've already just been to town and I've come home and my agent said get back to town <laughs> and, and go and um and I was very I was a kind of fish out of water at that point but I I did the favorite and that was an amazing experience and then I'd also worked with Emma Stone again on Cruella after that uh, and so I had an email from Yorgos and Emma saying we're about to embark upon our next feature film and would oh. you like to come and do it and I I received I was at home and I got the email and I actually had a copy of Poor Things weirdly oh. and I just sent back a picture of me with my thumbs up holding the book just <laughs> yes I didn't I even know, need to know anything more about it I just thought if this is Poor Things Yorgos Emma it's a kind of no-brainer to do it Done really deal. so yeah absolutely <laughs> so and then I went in to meet and I saw what James and Shona our production designers were doing and at that point it was a very small office had been set up with just some original concepts and started to kind of feel where we were going loosely I just knew it was going to be something mm -hmm. we hadn't seen before the the original concept art was so kind of out there that I was like oh okay this is going to be something very different and then we went into lockdown so oh, those conversations right. kind of kept happening oh and so it was always sort of bubbling away over that time but not really knowing whether we were going to do it whether it was going to happen or and then it when it did it was suddenly all full steam ahead and we were heading off to <laughs> as <Budapest>. always yeah <laughs> so yeah fantastic well i think it's so wonderful to work with the same director again because you have some uh, what of a shorthand i really love that i really love well, you know to no you say that but not with your goss no there is no oh. there's no shorthand oh. no 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 oh. i think that's the misconception but, that if we trust it feels like you start all over again. And I think naively I went into it okay. thinking, oh, I'm one of the <laughs> HODs here that's worked with him before and I'll I'll be able to figure out. But absolutely not. I, I honestly think, and I'm sure Holly would probably agree, that you could work with him 10 times and I don't think you'd fully understand. You'd, you'd kind of understand the process, but the process is he lets you go and find what this is. He doesn't give you Amazing. lots of reference in the beginning which is a, an incredible amount of trust when you look back at it but I think that process would always be the same so 
that's the only thing you would really know having worked with him before. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I didn't have an advantage, which I thought I was going to if I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but you did know Emma Stone. So that's, that's quite lovely to, to have, you know, collaborate again. Yeah. And having that relationship from the get go with your lead actress in such a kind of, you know, huge character to, to already know your actress and be friends with her and to yeah have yeah. that trust is, yeah, that's de- that definitely, definitely helped. I mean, I work with Emma Stone and I absolutely adore her. I did a very funny movie called House Bunny with her. <laughs> she played a, oh. a sorority girl, kind of a <laughs> very uptight sorority girl. And it was a really <laughs> wonderful to, I mean, she's so smart, you know, she really has such great instincts. Yeah. And I, I think... Holly, I would love to move to you and ask you about that process with her because she's so instinctual. You know, it, I mean, it's it's so amazing how she kind of feels things. And I think that maybe you can talk a little bit about the process with her in the fitting room. And, you know, once you've got the ideas going. So I, th- I completely agree with you, Mona, that she she's incredibly smart. I thought she was so sharp, so quick-witted and instinctual, as you say. Um, so what I noticed about her very quickly was that she was really not concerned at all about her own image, actually. She was very, very able to separate her set sort of concerns with her own image and only make decisions based upon what was going to be the right thing for the production. And so she really... it. Our work was more like having conversations. She was keen to hear the logic, the thinking behind every decision. And if she was comfortable with that, then she would say, yeah, let's do that then. She was less interested in having fittings where, you know, she felt the costumes and felt and saw how they would look. It was much more conceptual for her, I think. And I think that says quite a lot about her. You know, and, you know, there's not an ounce of vanity, which I was really interested in. Incredible. I find it incredible about her. When we started her look in the film, she was not looking very good. She was kind of a, you know, nerdy studios girl. And then things kind of changed from there. But I love that, you know, you can explore it. And I think, Nadia, for you too, did you guys kind of have things together where you saw each other? Would would you come into the fittings at all? Sometimes I like that in the process too, maybe have the hair people and try the hair with the costumes or anything like that. I mean, that was so interesting that you didn't use a wig, that actually there were wefts of hair, right, that, that you yeah. added, yeah. which I think was so brilliant. It looked so real and kind of yeah. edgy almost. I mean, it was modern. I mean, it, it felt modern. Yeah, I mean, it, it came from having an email from Yorgos that just said no wigs. That's all it said on the email. <laughs> so mm-hmm, you, mm-hmm. I wasn't allowed them. But actually, that was absolutely the right way to go as well. And like you say, a much more natural approach to it, because everything that you're looking at is you're looking at Emma and the front, her hairline and her hair, and then just adding to it. So when we arrived in Budapest, like I said, it was kind of like, we just hit the ground running, I think. And it was so busy and so, and it was, you know, kind of just coming out of the pandemic. So everything was difficult. I mean, it was Hollywood, I think difficult for her to get things into the country and that kind of thing. So we, it, it was a, it was a tough prep period and, but we definitely at some point started to do fittings and actually send Emma off with the hair to dance pieces of costume, wear things so that she could move in them. Cause everything was quite, you know, it's a, it's a lot to deal with. So much physical. I mean, there was just so much physical, you know, it's very interesting to do movies. I think Holly and design costumes when there's so much physicality. 
you know, there's yeah. so much movement. I mean, you know, her kind of jagged almost movements in the beginning, you know, how does that all work? And I mean, long hair can be very cumbersome too with costumes and the big sleeves and, you know, it's all kind of has to make sense and, and feel natural. So I, I think it was achieved quite beautifully. I think sometimes, I mean, obviously there's a, there's a lot of prep involved and a lot of thought behind it, but I, I do feel with this film that there was a sort of, at points, a strange kind of alchemy where things sort of worked together. It all kind of just meshed together and it all, it all worked. Because like you say, to have costumes in the shapes that they are, to then have all that hair could all be too much or too much for an yeah. actress, but actually just suddenly all kind of worked well the hair was it's the, the hair itself was something in the film i mean I, I think character. we were mesmerized <laughs> by the hair yeah i mean it was its own character i mean truly yeah also the hair meant that we could be much more bold with the clothes with the hair being as it was ah you're right proportion wise yeah, yeah proportion wise you know in every in every way in terms of which colors we use and everything so i think it all started to make sense to me once we got the hair in the fitting room so as soon as yeah. You know, we do the fittings with, with Emma with her normal hair, but as soon as we got that hair on, that's when it started to come to life. I mean, that's uh, what happens always, I suppose. But in this instance, yeah. you know, the yeah. hair was so yeah. extreme that it meant that, you know, I could then pick colours which I wouldn't have possibly considered before. You know, like the very strong yellows right. that I used. Right. Um, worked right. with yellow, worked with the black of the hair. And right. I do have right. some fitting pictures early on when the actors first got to Budapest and we were doing mm-hmm. those fittings, Nadia, where, you know, everything was a bit half made and the hair wasn't completely mm-hmm. finessed. And right. it right. was a bit like it's not quite there. You know, the costumes right. were... Yeah. Right. A bit of a mess right. and the hair's a bit not quite sort of polished enough at this point. So, you know, there was a journey, wasn't there, from there to getting it to be ready to go on camera. And I think that bit was that was very an eggy part of our process, wasn't it? Because we had to do yeah. that for each actor. Well, you know, Yorgos wanted screen tests all the time. The actors had just arrived and we were flying around in the baking heat, weren't we, with masks on. <laughs> trying to um oh god i remember the days oh my god yeah it was difficult it was difficult to kind of like pull it all together with the time and resources and not having your usual team around you my my hungarian team were great but like not having your usual shorthand with your team and the kind of places you would go to buy hair or buy things and not you know so it was difficult to kind of pull it all together and I'd had all those hair wefts made in a very dark brown. And then when Emma arrived, her hair was black. And so then we had to dye all those masses of hair black because it was, <laughs> but actually it was kind of, uh, you know, a happy accident because like Holly was saying, out, yeah. what the black meant was that it worked with everything. It didn't matter where you put her in this kind of, in Lisbon in all these bright colors, it worked. If you put her into the brothel, it works. It's so, it, and I can't imagine any other color would have worked as well now looking back at it i also felt it was very edgy you know it kind of gave her some kind of edginess i mean i think this whole movie is so interesting it's like you know art nouveau and steroids <laughs> and you know it's just something that's that's happening and and it, it i mean it modernized her in some weird way i think that mm. black hair was really kind of cool you know there was something maybe what you in the beginning mentioned some japanese thing or something that just kind of worked you know like anime i don't know anime-ish or well, you know. thinking about those dolls, you know, at the beginning, that book of dolls, you know, they didn't even 
because that felt so early on in the process, I don't think many of those images actually made it to our final mood boards. But actually, uh-huh. if, if I went back to them, they probably do look quite a lot like how mm-hmm. she ended up. Right? Because, I mean, they have the little bodies and Emma's little body and then you have the big sleeves and the hair. It's kind of like... And the translucent skin... And, yeah. the, and the big eyes and then even your rubber your textures kind of you know that feels but that's what i mean about you know you have to trust those initial instincts don't you because you do it in a big rush over a weekend reading the book reading the script yeah. missing your parties doing mood boards trying but but actually you know when you work under that pressure and often those are the things that you come up with that are the kind of right you know the step in the right direction i think also the modernity comes from partly that if you're doing a Victorian shapes but you remove the corset and start taking the skirts away as soon as you take the corset away you've lost the period really yeah and so for me the costume started to look quite 70s you know in a really good way they started to evoke yeah. a sort of sense of the 1970s to me particularly once we saw the hair down and then you added the 70s colors to the 70s colors a little bit I mean that was kind of those yellows and browns 70s colors yeah i mean it suddenly started to tip yeah. into a slightly and I, I felt like the connection to the 70s was a really useful one because of you know it was a period of sexual liberation wasn't it and you know there was a kind of emulation in fashion of late victorian shapes when you think about designers like laura ashley and what they were doing and you know yeah. you know even bieber you know it was it was all Yes, and and you know what, Aussie Clark, you know quite quite a lot of what yeah. was happening in fashion in the seventies was a, was was a sort of reinterpretation of the late nineteenth century. That's really interesting about the seventies. I hadn't thought about it as much as I'm just thinking about it now. But actually, that whole kind of time and that sort of freedom of expression and women feeling a lot more kind of sexually liberated and, and they all had really their plays. Yeah, it all really plays into that. And that mar- her having her hair down is, is such a marker of not conforming to what's going on around her. Yeah. Not right. not intentionally. She doesn't know to do that. But actually, that is, is such a... It, her to have her hair down all the time is... That wasn't right to do that. So it, it, it's another kind of, yeah, bring something modern to it, but also a, an expression of... Uh, freedom her yeah. sort of freedom yeah, yeah yeah i was thinking about my mother's wedding dress because she my mum looked fantastic in her wedding in the in the early 70s and she's got long hair all the way down to her bottom with a center part in and then mm-hmm. white nylon you know sort of flouncy like, like a sort of spin-off an edwardian dress with big wings and she's wearing pearlized rubber boots like wellies almost like wellies with a platform on them <laughs> Something I love it. Of that, there was something of that period inherent in the in the poor things costumes. Without thinking, oh, we're doing a sort of seventies thing, it just came right, about. And right. I think if you if you take away the corset and you have this long hair, these are the ingredients combined with these late nineteenth century shapes that evoke the spirit of the nineteen seventies. Yeah, so beautiful, it's so beautiful. I love when things come together. You know, it's so magical. I mean, that's I think why we do this. It's just the makeup and yeah, you know, the, the makeup and the hair and the sets and you know, just. All, I mean, this to me, it was like a pulsating movie where everything just kind of was alive. You know, I mean, the walls and the ceilings, <laughs> it was just wild. I mean, truly, you know, I mean, the originality of this was incredible. I mean, the padded walls that she had in the room that were like embroidery or what it was just quilted. Right. Quil- quilted. Yes. I mean, it was like incredible. I mean, it was really this realism and fantasy was so woven so beautifully. 
Support for the Ankler Art and Crafts comes from Searchlight Pictures presenting Poor Things, the triumphant new comedy from director Yorgos Lanthimos. Poor Things is the incredible evolutionary tale of Bella Baxter, a young woman brought back to life by the brilliant and unorthodox scientist Dr. Godwin Baxter. Now nominated for 11 Academy Awards, including Best Actress and Best Picture, winner of two Golden Globe Awards, including Best Actress and Best Picture, Musical or Comedy, and winner of the Critics' Choice Award, Los Angeles Film Critics Association, and London Critics Circle for Best Actress. Critics hail Poor Things as, quote, the greatest artistic achievement of Emma Stone's career, for your consideration in all categories. I just feel that this story also was so interesting, you know, about this child woman coming of age, in a sense, in front of our eyes, and kind of all of the constrictive things that we talked about, the costumes and the hair and stuff, how that allowed her. And, you know, she was a trailblazing kind of in that time and breaking all the rules, which was so cool too. I've done a lot of female-driven stories in, in my career, and I, that's something that really draws me too, you know, something that beautiful, that he, it was profound in some ways, I think, this film, about how, you know, she expressed herself and how we see how we can't express ourselves and wh- what happens to us as women. You know, I think that was really fantastic. And I think, Holly, how you supported that with the costumes. I just watched the movie again. And I mean, I didn't remember that in the end you put her in a turtleneck. And I was like, (laughs) emancipation. I mean, that was so cool, right? I mean, that whole thing from the child, from the, you know, see-through things and the gowns. And, you know, then when she gets kind of back and she's in a little black outfits, you know, now she wants to be a doctor. She's a woman. And in the end, she was in a turtleneck. I was like, Holy shit, this is so great. <laughs> and again, coming back to the 70s a little bit in a way, I think. We shot that scene really early on. And I was really, you know, you're just flying by the seat of your pants a little bit. You're kind of making, you're having to make quick decisions in the moment. So we were shooting the last scene, I think in maybe week two or three of the shoot, very early on. And it, was, oh, wow. it wasn't ideal because I, you know, everything else was shot chronologically. And, you know, a lot of the decisions were kind of, you know, for example, when Nadia and I were doing the brothel, you know, we all the way through the job, we would say to each other, wow. how are we going to do the brothel? How are we going to do the brothel? <laughs> and we would say, I don't know, but we'll, we'll do that. And we'll think about that in a little bit. Let's just do we'll what we're doing. It. We'll get to it. And, you know, and then, you know, the week before the brothel is like, right, we have to do the brothel now. And we just did it. You know, everything was a little bit like that a week or 10 days beforehand. But then with that scene at the end, I had to come up with that in week two. And I think I'd had this jumper knitted for her. And it's based on a 19th century reference, a late night, fantastic reference of of a beautiful ribbed 1890s jumper with a crew neck and big, big, huge leg and mutton sleeves. And it was a very, you know, I copied it verbatim from a reference. Hilary Slayman, the wonderful historical knitwear expert, you know, but again, it was making decisions based on instinct. Like I thought that for that last scene, you know, she's completely immersed in her work. As the film ends, she's looking at her book. She does not come up to meet the viewer. Um, you know, the camera is on her. You think as the credits are rolling up that she's going to meet the gaze and it, and she doesn't because she's off she's into this new world and and so the clothes needed to be like just ordinary clothes that just she just wears they're not conspicuous she's putting them together in a very normal and simple way by this point and they're like practical sensible pieces of clothing 
but yes, making that decision in week two was a bit, a little bit tricky. Well, well done, my friend. I'm impressed. I'm really impressed by your instinct. I, I feel like, you know, what I felt when I saw it, it was like she stripped it all. Like she didn't need anything else, like any kind of armor or any kind of thing that maybe she was made to wear or however, it was just gone. I mean, it was just simply her. What's so lovely in this film, and obviously I'm sort of biased, but <laughs> is that between the production design, the costume design and the hair and makeup is so connected to the story and, you know, tell such a story and me following Harley's lead in terms of where that journey was going with her costume really told me who she was at that moment. Who is she now? How is she feeling now? And that it really kind of came together to tell the story. Oh, incredibly. And I mean, you know, and it was all kinds of funny situations. I mean, when you did the makeup for her in the, you know, when she was in the brothel, I mean, it was just the blue stuff. And, you know, that whole scene when the girls are standing there, I screenshotted last night. I was like, oh my God, I just love it. I wish there was more time seeing each one of them. It was so beautiful. There was so much texture and so much, I mean, the hair and makeup, it was so creative. It was super fun. I mean, I think we need a mini movie just of that. (laughs) Oh, I know. I mean, that's the the thing though, but part of the storytelling of it. And that's where Yorgos is great when he does put these kind of restrictions of like, he doesn't want makeup on just for the sake of having makeup. Because what it does do is, it means you do use it to tell a story. And the only reason she would have makeup on there is because the, the girls are wearing makeup to yeah. promote themselves to customers at the brothel. That's why they're wearing the makeup. So there's a point to it. You know, it's not just yeah. for people to be stood there looking pretty. It's, you know, it's used in a way. And actually, again, quite 70s style makeup in terms of their kind of placement of it and the big kind of colors on eyes and that kind of thing. You know, red lipstick was to promote sex basically so yeah it's so kind of storytelling again Beautiful. i loved doing the brothel i mean i think both nadia and i you know we we didn't have a clear steer on that throughout yeah. the whole we used to sort of say oh the brothel what are we going to do for the brothel <laughs> and then and then and then it got to about 10 days before or even a week before and i and i was flying around you know, I, I had an assistant shopping in London for skin-coloured clothes and then she came on a plane because by this point everybody was had dropped down with COVID, everybody was ill and if anyone had sat on a minibus near at somebody who'd had COVID, oh, they gosh. couldn't come into work for 10 oh, days. Gosh. So I had virtually no costume team by this point. <sighs> so I got Eleanor to come out on a plane with a, she was running around the shops buying you know, we'd run out of money by this point. So it was all really cheap stuff, you know, from the high street. <laughs> and then she was bringing it into Budapest in the suitcase. And then she was ill. So I just remember doing all the fittings on the oh, she- And just, <laughs> just doing all of these fittings and getting... There was a brilliant factory in Hungary that was running up these this fantastic supervisor, Zsuzsa, who had just... She just knew everyone. She just knew everyone. There was a factory that was making little runs of things really well and we brought this this um yeah if you ever do a job in budapest mona you know i'm I'm sure you have already (laughs) but we had this bolt of fabric that i'd really early on just committed to buying the whole bolt of 30 meters of this stuff and it was black floral flocked wool that had had latex Mm. poured all over it It it's pretty ugly stuff you know it's strange it looked sort of like elephant skin very strange texture rubbery matte dry odd 
And we sent it off to this factory with a little design for these big, huge sleeved gowns that revealed the that had big cutouts for the breasts. So you saw that. So there was a celebration of the breasts. So no corsets, but these gowns that just showed off the upper body. And we made them in short, a short length and a full length. And then we made these grandma-inspired knickers out of really thick nylon. I was trying to do the antithesis of sex underwear, basically. So mm-hmm. I was thinking, what you know, what's the opposite of red and black and pink sexy lingerie it would be like, you know, t- skin-coloured types. So we made these knickers that were in that sort of palette, in that sort of spandexy, nylon-y fabric. Um, but we cut them super low so that they showed off the pubic hair, which again was trying to work against what is deemed to be sexy. You know, we made a thing of the pubic hair, didn't we? Mm, didn't, yeah. Didn't you, Nadia? <laughs> and I yes. trained it in the knickers. <laughs> yes, I had to stick on some pubic hair at point. <laughs> I really, actually, in the end, I really loved the brothel, you know, and... Mm. Yeah, yeah and beautiful. but it was it was it was a one moment the only moment I think where we stood there and looked and and said together oh, yeah we did all yeah. right there we we did get, I remember them all being stood in front of that fireplace and like you said weeks of going what are we going to do with the brothel we don't like we we just didn't know what it was and then to have that moment with them all stood there was just like oh okay. They look really cool. This is good. You know, really cool. Really happy with really what we did. Cool. And like you said, I wish we'd have spent more time with them. Really, but yeah, we hardly yeah. see them. It's, it's a quick moment. It really is a quick moment. Yeah, but it's yeah. it's it's definitely memorable. And you know, for the people who notice, they notice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Nadia, tell me a little bit about the William Defoe makeup. That's so interesting. That it. The, the way that he's kind of almost deformed his face is just, you know, the thumbs and like everything, like the torturous childhood that he must had. Yeah, I mean, obviously it's it's in the script that he talks about what his father has done to him and there's points in the script that he explains that. So you kind of need to, you know, I knew I needed to show that on his face, but there's always that thing when you start covering with prosthetics that you don't want to sort of go into kind of monster world and make him scary looking all the time and I also think there's that if you do something that's so impactful you don't need to keep selling that point all the time you don't need to keep seeing you know a full face of prosthetics so I wanted to make sure that we saw Willem in amongst that and again not to cover Willem Dafoe's amazing face you've to work with it and there was a Francis Bacon reference of um, a distorted face so that was a big reference because you could mm-hmm. still see the man, but it was off. Something's off with the painting. And then we just went through. It was really a tough process, though, because nobody really knew what it is. It needs to be shocking enough that people are commenting on him in the streets, that he says he can't really go out because of what he looks like. But then also to see the man that she loves. And so... Yeah, it was a really, really difficult process. We went through lots and lots and lots of artwork and I worked really closely with Mark Coulier, an amazing prosthetics designer, and Josh Weston, who applied the makeup. And just there was lots of different sculpts, lots of different concepts of that until we landed on something that kind of almost looked like a sort of... It's in pieces, it's in five pieces, and I quite like that idea of him being put together, but you see his face around it. 
And there's things like the ear is very slightly lower on one side than it is on the other. So it's been taken off, but put back on slightly lower. And it's a very slightly different skin tone. Did it die slightly (laughs) and then put back Mm -hmm, on, you know? mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. it was a really tough process, but I'm really happy with where we got to because as well as all of that, it's strange. It isn't like anything else that I've seen. It's strange and ugly, but it draws you in. There's something Mm. still that William Dafoe, I think, can come through. And I, I love the deep lines in between the pieces that you put. I don't know, there's something just so interesting. It's ugly, but also he's such a brilliant actor. I think that he brought warmth through it. I think it changes when you see him. Yeah, it's ugly, but everything that's been done is also very precise because his father would have been an amazing surgeon. So the actual work is good work. The scars are all kind of very neat and precise, but then put together, it kind of creates this yeah distorted face. Incredible. I mean, it's so emotional. And that's what I love about this film too. You know, everything just, I feel everything when I, when I see this film, you know, I did, I mean, the textures, Holly, that you put in, you know, the see-through textures, the, was it boning that you used on the sleeves or what did you use? No, no. we didn't use boning. There's actually surprisingly little inside the sleeves. You know, they're very light. Okay. They're, they're very light. There's a bit of tulle to kick them out. Okay. Most of them, the fabric is sort of doing its own thing. You know, the, the fabric is kind of holding the shape. What was it again, like when you were thinking about this kind of see-throughness and all of the kind of textures. It was very interesting is when I watched the movie again the last time and I saw the first scene when she was still a baby. Almost it was like a diaper reef texture of her. It was such a kind of a different thing, heavy. And then it, it just got lighter. Yeah. So at the very beginning, when she's sitting at the piano, the texture there. Yeah. That's a really yeah. deep texture. That was a fabric that was, you know, it, it came like that. It was a woven sort of silk mix thing, like a very beautiful couture fabric that came from Italy, that was about wanting the shape to alter her body shape, to give this sense of otherness and to kind of push this idea of her being creature-like. And also for there to be this lightness to the textures, you know, not for them to be stodgy and heavy. So I wanted to save those for maybe background artists and Madame Swiney, you know, she and, and, and Mrs. Prim, but not for Bella because she's got this ineffable lightness about her. Yeah, I loved it too, because when I design, I, I think about proportion a lot. You know, there's something about proportion of any kind of item of clothing that you put on someone. And I really found the, especially in that scene, the big sleeves created that child, you know. So, I mean, she really looked like a child in that kind of enormous sleep you know there was just kind of that little body inside so it was quite cool to meet her that way i mean really the big sleeves was a conversation with yorgos and shona early on i had really brainstormed the whole of the late 19th century you know the the book is set in the 1880s the script tony's script was written you know in the 1880s he'd noted a date in the 1880s but, you know, we were not being slavish. And we looked at lots of different parts of the, you know, between the 1880s and the 19th century. And it was really Yorgos who really pushed for the big sleeves. And it really surprised me because, you know, you'll know this too, that in costume houses, you don't see a lot of the, the huge leg of mutton sleeves of the 1890s. It, they're not really done. And, and I think if they have been done, they've often been really simmered down to a, a much more modest proportion than what they actually would have been at that time. I'm not sure for how long the leg of mutton sea was in vogue. I think it was a very brief period. But one of my assistants had found on Portobello Market a book of 
like a ladies' magazine with patterns, you know, dressmaking patterns. And we just made some up just to see what they were like. And actually, we were oh, wow. amazed by the scale of them. You know, they were huge. So I think in period dramas, often, you know, things are tempered, aren't they? They're simmered down because, you know, often we need to make our costumes are the period less conspicuous you know there are many ways to do costume design but i had noticed that there were none of these in the costume houses and i was thinking how are we going to pull this off because how will we get enough of these clothes and also are we really going to do this and yorgos was very committed to them which you know again you know he's a very brave and bold guy when we got there on the first day with the big huge one at the piano they really interfered with camera angles so that was the only thing you know that yorgos said actually i can only look at her from the front or the back like I can't do the side because this sleeve was covering her whole face so we did have to amend them a little bit after that first day that first one we had to make them more outward and less up so that might be why they're not in the costume houses (laughs) I so feel your pain I so feel your pain I did a costume for Enchanted and there was a prince costume and there was an animated character that I then became a live action character and when we had started the fittings the sleeves were so big we couldn't see the actor's head yes. and we had to you know find that scale that actually worked that we could see him and so it's fascinating i love that Yorgos was committed i really think that this really was something so special and so different you know i mean it was it was kind of weirdly pure to something that kind of brought that character together and gave her just such incredible like strength or something i mean this is it this is it i'm here with my big sleeve and you know my little knickers i mean it was so crazy (laughs) and the little white booties that you put on her i was like i mean when she was kind of like running around in lisbon it's crazy cool it's just so fun yeah yeah and I think to have this freedom for both of you, I think it's so, again, I think we are mesmerized by this film and the you know art production. I mean, I cannot say more amazing things about the production design and how they have accomplished that. I mean, I think that maybe being in Budapest is something to do with these artisans, people who can build that and plaster things. And, you know, I mean, it, it was phenomenal. You know, I think that having you ladies this time where you made the movie you know under the constrictions of COVID and also you know Budapest and not getting able to I mean you talked about that Holly to not getting stuff from from London and the Brexit and all that stuff I mean it's this is all like shackles this is you know it's Mm. not easy to produce something that is so grand and I mean to really break through kind of the the norm that we always have as artists that we kind of go one way and you know again as you said, Yorgos is just an incredible artist. I think that's the thing. I think it's because of him that we got to do this kind of work, you know, because I think it's very fearless to allow your collaborators to work like that. It's quite risky, isn't it? So I think, yeah. um, I don't think many directors maybe do that. No, yeah. I think you're much more shackled most of the time. I don't think you get the complete freedom. Well, you have, you also have the studios. You have these producers yeah. on breathing on your neck and going, "What's with the sleeves?" But he doesn't. You know, he like... doesn't allow that. It doesn't ever. <laughs> you know, he doesn't. It, that never really comes into it because he kind of. You know, it's very clear that he's in charge and he's has a vision for that. But I always think his films look much shinier finished, you know, when we're talking about how difficult things were. Same with with The Favourite, you know, when you watch these films, you go, oh my goodness, but actually having to pull it all together was, yeah, it was tough. (laughs) 
listen, it's not easy. Like you said, it looks shiny. It flows just seamlessly, but the blood and sweat, it's really, I think, you know, that's why I love that we have these podcasts and really can talk about it, you know, kind mm. of what our processes are and the journey that we have to get to, through to have these things, you know, be on screen. And, you know, it takes just a, truly a village. And I mean, again, Emma Stone is just, I hope she wins an Oscar for this. I mean, when she listened to the woman singing in oh. this bond, I mean, that, that moment was just so beautiful. She's so brilliant, you know. It's incredible, though, because when I watched the film, I thought I was with her all the time and I still didn't really see all the little nuances, all the, the decisions that she made until I saw it on the big screen. And I, I just was blown away by it, even though I, we were there. There were so many little decisions that she made in, in speech and movement and everything that I just thought were incredible. I thought it was an amazing performance. Well, she's also fearless. Mm. Yes. It's a very brave thing to do that sort of performance, isn't it? To put yourself out there and to get out there every morning. I mean, the, the dance scene was insane. I mean, that was just so it's much. my favourite scene. I love it. <laughs> so I love it too. I always <laughs> laugh louder than anyone else in the cinema. Whenever I've seen that, I've laughed the loudest. <laughs> <laughs> I do too. I just think it's so funny. I have a couple more questions for you, Holly. I want to talk about the rotten apple color. Yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> so that was early, early on. Early on in the process, I was getting to know Yorgos and Shona and James were coming up with their palette. We did some camera tests very early on. And we were looking at these really ugly colours that you get often in anatomical drawings and also in those anatomical models. You know, they're like sludgy, mm -hmm. salmony pinks and strange liver yes. colours and slightly off, <laughs> grotty, you know, muddy colours. And I was putting clothes together and we were camera testing them very, very early on. And I was chatting to Yorgos about colours and he said, I think that you're describing the colours of rotting apples. And I thought... Am I? I I don't think I know the colours of rotting apples. I think I think the colours of rotting apples are probably like that sort of oxidised white. You know when an apple is left out and it goes a bit brown. Yes. yes. So I scuttled off and got on my phone and had a look up. Uh, did a quick Google search on rotting apples and what came up with this was this really vibrant spectrum of you know depending on the colour of the apple, of course you get like a whole spectrum including acid canary yellow coral pink like poppy red all of these colors that we actually were actually in the film most of the colors are all in this palette of the rotting apple and i made these big boards they're very beautiful of pictures of rotting apples and that was wow. that was it but i think it says something about him actually i think he's got a really um hypersensitive sort of hyper hypersensitivity to color to have even known that this was the color of a rotting apple right actually you know because i think i'm quite sensitive to color but i i think he sort of goes a few steps further actually so the yellows was the cue for you for the yellows and kind of the nudes and and were you already thinking about the yellows? I was or thinking were you... about those colours. You know, I was tr giving him a lot of colour references and it was he who said, this is the palette of a rotting apple. But even like, it's very poetic to come up with that, isn't it? Okay. Because just that she is almost like a piece of fruit, you know, that's in this, trapped in this house. You know, for this period in the house, she yes. is almost like, there is yes. something metaphorical about that that description, I think. I mean, I did, it's a one big metaphor, truly. I mean, this whole movie, there's just so much 
there's just so much depth and and beauty and art and humor and uh you know this this whole world of seeing through her eyes you know in a way and how she experiences and and how we i think as humans maybe we need a little lesson in that to just be more open and kind of not as rigid and you know see the beauty and 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 the ugly too, you know, in a way, and kind of be open to it as one is not better or the other in a sense. I mean, it is all, you know, the yin and yang of all things. And yeah, and uh, I think that was incredible. I mean, I want to thank you so much because truly it was a feast for the eyes, feast for the heart, <laughs> and it will live forever, which is wonderful for the generations to see and be inspired and and just truly. You know, art like this, I think, in the film is so rare, as I said in the beginning. And it's just really something for all of us to enjoy, you know. And I think as artists, be inspired. So thank you for that. Really thank you. Thank you, thank you, so thank much. you for your yeah. um, wonderful insights and thoughts. It's, yeah. it's lovely to speak to you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. It was lovely. Well, I'm, I'm such a fan of both of you. So it was a pleasure. All the best of luck. I hope out of the 11, one is yours, you know, <laughs> nominations. It'll be wonderful. Hopefully we can celebrate that occasion for all of you. I mean, I hope all 11 come to fruition and spe- especially I think Emma, I just really hope she wins. It's yeah. incredible. Yeah. It's an incredible experience for her. So all the best of luck. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>